Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I see people are starting to kind of roll their way in, but welcome um, and thanks for joining us today in this latest edition of Render. My name is Ben Scheim. I'm Executive Director of Betaworks Studios, and I'm thrilled that you've all decided to join us today for this latest virtual edition of Render Reclaiming Trust. Reclaiming Trust is the seventh edition of this conference series that we've done, which is typically a bi-monthly series, taking a look at new frontiers for tech and where money is going to power them. Uh, these areas are for us at Betaworks, the bits of the soon to be future that we're particularly interested in looking at, kind of like Quartz with their idea of obsessions. Um, in highlighting these topics, they're not necessarily saying that they're the only things you should care about in tech, but they're certainly what we're looking at right now. Although to be perfectly honest, probably all, most people in America right now are thinking about trust and information today of all days. Um, past renders, we've focused on things like gaming culture, voice and audio tech, synthetic media, humanistic technology. And today we're taking a look at disinformation and trust and whether or not we'll ever be able to trust anyone or anything ever again. Um, I mentioned we at Betaworks before, in case you're new here, we means a few things. Betaworks Ventures, our VC, Betaworks Camp, our accelerator program, um, Betaworks Studios, which is our digital community of founders, investors, and builders. And the newest beta to our beta portfolio is Beta Lab, which is a partnership with Lupa Systems um, that is really focused around uh, taking a look at the way that information, disinformation, misinformation um, are impacting society. Um, Beta Lab is a accelerator program that we're running that's actually just kicked off right now. And Danica will talk about that in a moment. Um, as well as our events, series of event programs that we do um, once or twice a month that are just kind of looking at areas within this space. Um, and today's conference is a kind of bigger look um, uh, at the way everything sort of comes together. The focus of Render and the reason that we put this conference together, um, its lineage dates back to the old period of time in human history when people met together in physical spaces um, and gathered and shook hands and attended things like conferences. Um, Render uh, typically was a full day conference at our home in the meatpacking. Now it is a slightly truncated virtual event that all of you can attend wherever you may be. Um, and the focus of it really is that, you know, at a lot of conferences, you may just see talks. Um, but what the, we like to do at Render is kind of bring up a mix of interesting TED style uh, keynote um, talks. Um, conversations with one another, and then demos where we bring in companies that we think are doing interesting things related to the topic um, and have them do demos. So that's what we've got today, a full spate of exciting activity. Um, the event has been curated by Danica Lashuk, who is head of our Accelerator Camp um, and my partner in uh, building and developing Beta Lab, and she'll be running the Beta Lab Accelerator Camp. Um, and Yael Eisenstadt, who is Beta Lab's researcher in residence and has done a ton of other things, which she will get at today um, in her talk. Uh, or actually she's on stage twice. So thank you guys all for coming out. Um, I will just put one little plug in that if you're not already a virtual member of Betaworks Studios and you bought a ticket today, um, with your ticket, you actually get a free month's membership. Um, our team will put in the chat here and send you an email afterwards um, for you to join, but we'd love to have you join our community. Um, part of membership includes events every single day of the week. We do one premium event. We also have a platform called Experts where you can book one-to-one -one time with people that are experts in growth or pitch building um, or other kinds of areas. Um, we have Meet, our curated meeting program, um, and then our Slack community, which has hundreds of uh, builders, entrepreneurs, investors, and folks hopefully like yourself. So thank you guys all for coming today. I'd love to turn it over to Danica. Let's give her a huge, gigantic round of applause. And thanks for coming. So Danica, take it away. 
Hi, everybody. I'm Danica Lashi. Thank you so much for um, tuning in um, and turning up today. We have a great event for you, as Ben mentioned. Um, so, I, I, you know, I thought I'd share a little bit about Beta Lab. Um, Beta Lab is an early stage cohort based investment program combined with this year long series of workshops and events at BetaWorks um, online, as Ben mentioned. Um, but really, we have the singular goal here of catalyzing startup activity around fixing the internet. Um, so we're, uh, we have our first cohort that started this week. I'm really excited to welcome um, four companies in. Um, and we're still looking for investment. So if anybody who is you know, watching this today is inspired, um, get in touch with me on Twitter or over email or find our website. Um, we'd love to hear what you're building. Um, because it will take a lot of us to fix the internet and there's a lot of things wrong with it um, as we'll talk about some of those uh, today. So, you know, why are we doing this? We're doing this because, you know, collectively there's this growing sense now that that technology is creating more problems than it's actually solving. Um, this wasn't always the case, right? There was a time when we shared uh, an overriding optimism in tech's capacity to make the world a better place. Um, but today, I think these same technologies which do connect us are also have been, you know, are also being used or they've been weaponized to target, fragment, tribalize, disenfranchise citizens, um, and really overwhelm us and our society with disinformation, even now, very much today, we still struggle uh, to come to a shared consensus on what's true and what is not. Um, and so, you know, we want to have a conversation, a series of conversations today that help us better understand how do we reclaim uh, truth? How do we reclaim trust in one another? Um, and, you know, not wake up in the morning to find that the, the president has contracted COVID and then turn around to Twitter and find that there's, you know, an equal number of voices claiming that this is misinformation or this is fake news or this is just meant to distract from larger issues. Um, it's, it's troubling to say the least that that is kind of the state of our information ecosystem. Um, but uh, we don't believe at all that all is lost as forever optimists in, in tech and entrepreneurs capacity to solve real problems. You know, we think that there are a lot of things startups can do. We're going to showcase a few startups today, but we also want everybody to take away the message that, um, you know, trust is can be a founding principle of your company. It can be something that you you build in from the beginning and a building block on which um, you know, the, the, the rest of your company uh, can grow rather than something that you try to come at afterwards and, and gain the trust of users. Um, those who um, have heard me speak before know that I, I used to work at Apple and we had um, this decision matrix. And one of the things was, if we do this, if we make this feature decision in this product, will it garner more trust with our users or will it you know, withdraw trust from that bank. And so I think about that a lot um, in this context and when I'm working with startups. So with that, um, let's jump into the meat of the program. We do have, like I said, an incredible day. And to start us off, I'd really love to welcome Donny O'Sullivan, who's a reporter from CNN. He covers the platforms and certainly covers dis and misinformation. We have Yael Eisenstadt, who is my co-curator of this event today a researcher in residence at Beta Lab. We're very lucky to have her, but she's also a visiting fellow at Cornell Tech's Digital Life Initiative. 
a former Facebook uh, elections integrity head for political ads, and a former national security professional. So um, she has a lot of uh, history in this space. And we also have uh, Daniel Kreese, who's the principal researcher at the UNC Center for Information Technology and Public Life. So I'd like to welcome them up to stage, um, virtual stage, and I'll turn it over now. Thank you. Thank you very much, Danica. Um, Guys, thanks very much for joining me. Uh, you know, and I, I guess we're, we're meeting at a timely moment. Um, you know, so much of disinformation and misinformation and, and how it's sort of weaponized online focuses on huge news moments. And we are living uh, through one of them uh, right now. Well, it feels like we've been living through one for, for uh, all of 2020, but particularly since last night uh, with President Trump uh, uh, testing positive uh, for COVID. So I want you guys to um, sort of play, uh, be the be the good guys, uh, be the bad guys, and then be the good guys. And I was hoping both of you could talk me through if you are a, if you're a bad actor, whether it's, it's a domestic troll, uh, somebody trying to, you know, cause trouble within the US or somebody from outside, how could you, um, how could, how could you take uh, advantage of this moment? Um, and, you know, what is it that misinformation or disinformation campaigns are going to look like about Trump having COVID and also Biden testing negative um, in the next few days? Maybe we start with, um, with, with you, uh, Yael. Uh, sure. Uh, thanks for that fun question to start the day. Um, I mean, we're already seeing it happen, so it's not too far-fetched to have to think about what's going to happen. But maybe I'll, I'll wear my national security hat and put on the foreign uh, actor lens and, and maybe leave the domestic actor lens to Daniel, because uh, this question could take up the whole panel. Um, listen, there's no question, this is the perfect storm for bad actors to exploit and take advantage of. Um, and, and it's it's the perfect storm of why allowing the purveyors of disinformation and conspiracy theories to spread is so harmful to begin with. Um, let's just start with the idea that the president of the United States of America has tested positive for COVID is a national security threat. And, and that's not wearing my tech lens, that is not wearing my former Facebook hat, that is wearing my former national security hat. It is absolutely a potential national security threat. There are so many questions involved when the commander in chief of what should be the most powerful country in the world is possibly, I don't want to say incapacitated, but he can't serve in his role. So already it's a huge issue. And then we also have the election coming up. And so, I mean, any bad actor can manipulate this. Russia, and for example, I have no doubt that they will they will continue to try to spread information along the lines of disrupting not only sort of our civil discord, but possibly throwing a wrench into the election. We're already seeing apparently thousands of tweets and social media posts already calling for postponing the election. Um, the quick report I saw before this said that so many of those tweets are exactly the same language. So we don't know if it's bot activity, if it's real people, but between calling for postponing the election, throwing out conspiracy theories about, is this even true? I mean, I saw one this morning. Why do only Republican leaders seem to get, you know, get the coronavirus and no Democratic leaders? Hmm, might it be part of, and then name your conspiracy? And there's so many dangerous elements here. And without going through every single one of them, I, I suspect they're only going to get worse. And then on the flip side, it's 
there's also the irony that it kind of undercuts the whole propaganda point that COVID isn't a serious threat to begin with or that this administration has it under control. So I would say everything. I mean, if this was the October surprise, I didn't expect it. Um, and I'll just, I'll just throw this out for everybody to think about. How many of you, when you read this this morning or late last night, the very first thing that popped into your mind was, is this really true? Because I, even I, that was the first question I thought is, wait a minute, is this totally death definitely confirmed and really true. For me to have to ask myself that question when it is reported by official channels that the President of the United States tested positive shows that they've even managed to erode my trust in the information ecosystem. So I'll just, I'll, I'll put a pin in it there for now because I'm sure we'll have lots of questions to follow up on this one. Daniel, what about, what about you? How, how do you see this playing out in the next few days and weeks? Yeah, I mean, I think um, Yael sort of really laid laid a lot of the groundwork um, for the, the things that we should be concerned about. I, I guess I'll just sort of say a, a few points. Um, first of all, you know, trust is a reservoir, and once it's depleted, it's really hard to get back. Um, and I think exactly what we're seeing um, where reasonable people um, had questions about whether they could believe uh, the news coming out of the White House this morning just shows you how far we've gone um, from people trusting official institutional channels. Um, and to be frank, I mean, I think that's partially the outcome from all the damage that's been done by this administration um, uh, over the past four years, um, where they've sort of sought to undermine official channels of information. They've mixed politics with what is reliable. Um, and they've looked to sow doubt in, in people's minds uh, for their political gain and, and political advantage. Um, the second thing that I would um, sort of point to is that we have really good social science evidence at this point that there's asymmetry on the left and the right when it comes to disinformation. Um, the left on the whole generally has more faith and confidence in legacy media organizations and are therefore uh, more likely to check uh, newspapers and other editorial um, you know, media organizations uh, that have fact-checking built into their business models, or at the very least, editorial control and, and, and checks. Um, on the right, the situation is much more complicated. I think what we've seen over the, the last hundred years, really, is the building of an alternative right-wing media infrastructure. Um, whether that, you know, originated with pamphlets and, and conservative uh, newspapers and the like uh, in, the, in the middle of the last century uh, to talk radio in the 1990s on and, and now Fox News and now Breitbart and uh, other more extreme sites. And I think what we've seen um, is that there's a very disturbing pattern on the right where things will get aired like rumors or conspiracy theories. Uh, some of them can come from foreign actors. Some of them can come from strategic domestic actors. They get aired in, in um, you know, places like Parler or uh, on Twitter or, you know, on, on, you know, 4chan. And then they make their way to Breitbart and then they get covered by Fox News and then they make their way to the president. So we see this idea of trading up the chain within media systems where, um, you know, strategic actors can set the agenda of, of large scale media organizations. Um, so I think all these things are, are potentially very vulnerable. We're at a moment when there's low trust. We're at a moment when mainstream media organizations um, 
uh, or uh, have declining trust with their audiences. And we have a right-wing media ecosystem that has shown a lot of willingness to amplify uh, false claims. And then finally, I guess the, the thing that I would also say is that one really big problem in this, uh, in this whole space is that we know from a lot of political scientists that what elites do really matters. Um, and this is exactly where I think the biggest danger lies. So um, even if we can all sort of have reliable, verified information that Trump has the coronavirus, the question is over the next few days or even weeks, the state of his health, uh, the, you know, the treatments that he might be receiving or might not, um, how far it's spread within the administration, or now we're getting reports from the Senate, um, all these things are now going to be questions every step along the way that we're not going to have necessarily clear answers to. Um, and there's not a lot of trust um, in the official sources that we might have to give us clear answers to them. So we're at a, we're at a dangerous moment. Um, thanks for terrifying all of us, Daniel. Um, the, I should also mention, by the way, that we're going to open up this to um, a Q&A uh, from, from folks watching uh, in, in about 12 or 13 minutes. So uh, you guys can um, just drop in your questions in the Q&A box uh, at the bottom of, of Zoom here. Um, so I think, you know, the the easy question, if I wanted to ask you guys an easy question I could ask, um, you know, what should Facebook do uh, about misinformation? What should Twitter do? And, you know, there's there's always a long list of, of possible solutions, whether it comes to fact-checking or uh, to shutting down accounts. But to, to your point um, that you made specifically, Daniel, you know, it's, it's beyond that, right? It's, it's, it's very much more a systemic uh, thing throughout the information ecosystem. And I think an example of that probably came just this week in, in the hours leading up to the, the debate when there was the, the false, um, totally baseless claims that Joe Biden was going to wear an earpiece. Um, and that was, that was circulating on Facebook but it was also being amplified by the Trump campaign itself. It was on Fox News, it was on the Fox News homepage. Uh, it was also being pushed by QAnon. Um, so it was all over the place. And it was also sort of something, you know, it was baseless speculation. So even the fact checkers couldn't really say, no, that is totally false because it, it hadn't happened yet. How do you solve uh, an issue like that? And I'll let either of you, who wants to go first, whether it's, <laughs> Yael or, or, or Daniel, maybe Yael, I mean. First, last time, Daniel can start this time. <laughs> Daniel, where, where, where do you even begin to fix the mess we're in right now? And, and really, you know, do, this, do the social media companies get too much, um, uh, too much criticism for, for the role they play in all of this? Yeah, um, so I think they do. I, I think this is primarily a political problem uh, and not a platform problem. Although platforms certainly can play a role in helping us uh, move beyond the, the current state that we're in. Um, I think one, one really uh, maybe depressing fact is, is just the fact that elites are often the most important actor here. Um, people tend to take their cues from the leaders of their partisan team, uh, particularly people who are less attentive to politics, who don't live uh, you know, following every latest development on Twitter, who have busy lives, they have families to care for, they have jobs uh, to work at. Um, for those people who are often low information voters, um, what they do is they rely on their partisan leaders um, to for what to believe is true. Um, or they rely on, say, the editorial judgment of Fox News for what 
what goes on their, their homepage in order to believe in. Um, and I think that's the real danger here. I don't think there's much that Facebook um, or, or other platforms can do to solve that political problem. I think we need political actors to step up and be adults um, and to realize that we all have a, a stake in democracy and to continue playing this electoral game. Um, but I would say, you know, there are a few things that that Facebook and, and other platforms can do better. Um, first of all, a lot of their approach to disinformation has been doing one-off fact checks or one-off labels. Um, and I think that really misses the fact that these are strategic coordinated disinformation campaigns, full stop. So no one piece of information exists in isolation. There are larger orchestrated campaigns. And I think they have a responsibility to deal with that and address with that, whether that's enforcing their policies, whether that's um, you know, labeling things, taking them down. Second, I think that Facebook and other, and other platforms have been very reluctant to enforce speech policies already on the books against political actors, particularly powerful ones. So we've seen this over and over and over again with the president, um, where Facebook has been reluctant uh, to take action, even when uh, the president has violated his policies. And I think they need to do much better um, at, at actually enforcing them. And then finally, I guess uh, I would say, and this is, comes from some of the work that, that we've done uh, with uh, with YL, um, but you know, platforms can amplify good information much more so than they're currently doing. So if we look at like electoral disinformation, uh, it's not enough to simply have a standalone site that people have to opt into. Um, we should be pushing out reliable information into users' feeds where they can't avoid it. Um, what political scientists call inadvertent exposure. So even if you're not looking uh, to find good information, it's going to come to you. Um, and that's an important way, I think, to help solve the problem. Yael, you've, um, you are a member of uh, the new uh, real uh, Facebook oversight board, I think is what it's called. It's, it's, but it's, it's, not a real, it's not the real board. Uh, it, so Facebook has uh, set up uh, what they're calling a, an independent oversight board. Um, you obviously uh, and your colleagues uh, don't really have a face in, in that board, I guess, to, to do their jobs. And so you sort of set up a, a, a truly external uh, board. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that? And can you tell us then, I guess, in the context of, of this discussion, how you see, um, you know, what, what you want to achieve through that and, and, and what, you, what you think you can achieve? Sure. Um... I just want to, I'm going to give a tiny bit of an answer to the first question and then I'll go right into this, this new board effort. Um, so I have always said that I don't blame Facebook for everything that is wrong in the world. I don't blame Facebook for the fact that we have politicians who are purveyors of disinformation, for the fact that we have Fox News, for any of that. But there is a big difference here, so I just want to be really clear about that. Facebook is not just, it's not just about what speech is allowed on the platform. It's that every day they are making decisions about what speech they're amplifying, what speech they're suppressing, who they're connecting to whom, what groups they're pushing us towards. So before we let Facebook off the hook a little bit too easily on this, for me, it is a larger systemic issue about how their business model has created a situation where we trust less and less and less. We are, the, the hatred, the division, all of this, the 
the effects on civil discourse, the effects on our ability to even have an open public debate about things cannot be underplayed as to a big role of why we are where we are today. Um, so I just wanna, I'll say that very quickly now, I've written and screamed about this enough in, in the past. Um, so the real Facebook oversight board, this was an effort put together by a number of people. Um, right now, there's at least 25 um, people on it, you know, the Facebook, Oh, the funny the, say the real Facebook oversight board versus the actual oversight board. Um, Facebook set up this oversight board. It's been at least two years in the making. They call it the Supreme Court of Facebook. It's supposed to be an outside independent group of experts who are supposed to basically have binding decisions over some content moderation questions. In theory, it's a really wonderful idea. It could be an incredible experiment in how we can create external oversight and maybe some more transparency into how content moderation decisions are made. Love the concept, really some great people on that board. But in practice, it's not even stood up yet. And until we announced we were doing this, it wasn't supposed to be stood up until next year. Um, and they're only going to be looking, they're a, a small board who are going to be looking at cases of, of content that's been taken down and appealed, and then they'll have 90 days to make a decision if that was a good idea. Like, none of that is going to address our election right now. So on this board, I mean, it, you have civil rights leaders, the head of the NWACP, the, the head of the ADL, you have some really huge researchers, you've got Shoshana Zuboff who wrote Surveillance Capitalism, and you have very large, yes, some people will say there are some people who are, who are just critics, but you actually have really like legit researchers and experts in this space. And our goal is to just shine a light on this, shine a light on what is Facebook doing specifically about our election? What content for me, one of the biggest issues is voter suppression on the platform. It's what I tried to address while I was there. When you have a president who is continuously violating the platform's own policies about voter suppression by continuously posting misinformation about how to vote, about voter fraud, about mail-in ballots, that is not just misinformation on the platform. It's also amplified, boosted, spread all over if it's in political advertising, it can also be targeted to very vulnerable audiences who might see a totally different message than another group sees, so it's not a true public square. All of these things, our goal between now and November 3rd is to highlight that. And then from November 3rd onwards, which I think is a more dangerous time period, to be frank, um, to really continue to shine a light on, like, I suspect we will see fake videos, synthetic media, of look at this post office worker throwing ballots in the river. That will allow to spread on Facebook. Journalists like yourself, point, it takes journalists like yourself and researchers having to scream about it before Facebook even takes action on it, seen by millions of people before they finally make a decision. These are the things we wanna try to shine a light on because I think our election's in crisis and I think it's really important that they live up to their responsibility on it. If you were to um, have one, uh, Yael, if, if you were to have one, I guess, uh, wish, uh, if a genie were to show up, and, and there was one thing at Facebook before the election that you could either, that, that to a new rule that they uh, could bring in, or maybe uh, enforcement of a rule they already have, and they have many rules on their books they don't really enforce, what would be it? What do you think would be the most helpful one thing 
uh, in these final weeks of the election campaign to, to change. So unfortunately, I don't know there's much they can do now. I'm more focused on what they can do after November 3rd. The one thing before November 3rd, I think the most dangerous decision Mark Zuckerberg has made in the past year was to saying that he would allow politicians to lie and he would not fact check them. So I would just say enforcing your policies evenly, including against politicians about misinformation about voting. But can I give one thing for after November 3rd? After November 3rd, what I would call or some are calling something like a quiet period. It is the one and only time that I actually want this both sideism solution because I don't believe that you should label every post equally without any context. It kind of makes us not know what to trust. After November 3rd, any post talking about results, talking about victory, declaring anything like that should at the very least have a very clear big pop-up label, label that says this is premature, results aren't in yet, and they should just absolutely enforce this evenly that nobody should be able to spread any information about results until it is final the, and it is act, actually official. Um, Daniel, I'm gonna, I, I guess we're, we're gonna open up to the, the Q&A here and uh, I'll, I'll give you the, uh, the first, um, question from let me just take a look at uh uh some of what we got here um i mean a, a sort of similar question i suppose to what i asked yale but um matthew wilson asked daniel um you know what are the top three uh tactical strategies uh, that you feel uh should be operationalized to have an impact on misinformation disinformation you know what and i guess that's a very broad question but of course it is a very broad topic and um, so, Daniel, what would you say to that? Yeah, so um, I would agree. I think most of what uh, Yael said, I mean, sort of all of it. Um, but, but I guess if I had to sort of point to top three things they could do yeah. immediately, um, the first would be um, sharing uh, Yael's concerns between now and let's say January, um, <laughs> uh, in the likelihood that this is either a contested election or the outcome is clear, but, but a candidate or candidates do not concede. Um, I think one thing that every major platform should do is have a list of everyone on the ballot and all the party committees and the other major committees and monitor every one of those accounts with extra scrutiny. Uh, for false claims relating to election results, um, whether that's labeling it with premature, um, whether that's taking it down uh, preemptively. Um, I think that's going to be a very ripe period um, it, that might involve calls for violence. It, it might uh, involve calls for people to enter the streets. Again, keeping with the idea that we might not be able to enforce everything or find everything, but at the very least, taking care of elites and elite voices, I think, should be the the absolute utmost um, uh, priority. Um, you know, I, I guess the the second thing that I would sort of point to that platforms um, in in particular could do um, is you know in keeping with something that that we've uh, written and talked about before, which is um, really look to flood the zone with reliable information and reliable voices. Um, you know, every member of, of, of Board of Elections in this country, um, secretaries of state, official, bureaucratically reliable and credible sources 
should have platforms on platforms, full stop. Um, they should be able to get information out to voters. They should be able to flood the zone with reliable information that people can trust. And they should be empowered. And I think that's really key here. They should be empowered to amplify their voices uh, on, on platforms. And finally, I, I, you know, I guess the, the last thing that I would, um, that I would sort of uh, uh, point to um, here is that, um, and I don't really know if it's an operational change and what, what platforms can do, but I think disinformation campaigns, which we've seen in other, in other democratic countries that have backslided into authoritarianism or have had the erosion of their, of their democratic institutions, a common feature of all these countries is public cynicism, that eventually people just give up. Um, they, can't, um, you know, they can't determine what's true and what's false. There's people out there um, that are creating that uncertainty and therefore they, they spiral into cynicism. This is a big part of Putin's Russia, for instance. Um, and I think platforms, any way they can to try to promote these verified and accurate truths um, that do exist out there, um, whether that's proactively labeling content, um, but just trying to foster a sense on their platforms that there are things in the world that, that we know to be true and that we can trust in and that we can find reliable. Um, anything that helps counter that spiral to cynicism that is part of the authoritarian playbook. And I guess the, the challenge there, and, and Yael maybe can tell us what you think of this, but uh, as Daniel mentions, you know, uh, voices, uh, uh, trusted institutions that, that we might traditionally look to for reliable information around elections, um, you know, it's one thing, of course, to, to get those in people's feeds, but also, you know, uh, an institution, you know, that a lot of people would normally trust is the White House, is, is, is the, the office of the presidency. Um, so this sort of gets back to Facebook's point to say, you know, Facebook will say, well, we don't want to, we, as, as, a, as, a, as just a small little private company, uh, shouldn't have the power to, um, uh, shouldn't have the power to decide who is, who is the authority on something and who is not. Um, what, I mean, for both of you, but maybe for, for Yael first, um, you know, do you buy that argument? Uh, do, you, do you have any sympathy for that argument? Zero. Zero, zero. Ooh, I almost did the okay sign. If anyone saw that, I said zero. Um, I also apologize. Somehow construction just started outside my window. So sorry if that's really loud. Um, listen, Facebook intentionally grew and scaled to become the most dominant player in how we receive, share, and consume information. That was an intentional choice. So I don't buy this. We did everything we could to dominate this entire industry, but we don't want to bear any responsibility for it. Like that's, we, you chose this power and with great power comes great responsibility. So no, I don't buy that argument. Um, but you know, the funny thing about the arbiters of truth argument is it's not even, there's the longer play, which is going to take years, I believe, to get to a place where we figure out how to have a healthier information ecosystem, right? So there's the crisis response about this election, and then there's the longer play. The longer play is about figuring out how to completely upend a business model that is predicated on keeping us engaged and feeding us salacious content and, you know, amplifying some really harmful players in the world just because it's good for your business. So in the longer run, hopefully some of the people on this call are building products and thinking about business models that will tackle that. 
But um, I'm not asking them, well, maybe for the first time ever, I am asking them a little bit to think about what it means to be the arbiter of truth. But I'm not necessarily asking them to be the ones. I don't want Mark Zuckerberg deciding what is true or what is not. That's not what I'm asking. I am saying, first of all, when it comes to paid advertising, this is paid speech, not free speech. So on that end, I will never buy the argument that this is about censorship. You are profiting off of taking advertisements and providing very sophisticated targeting tools with which they can target certain communities. So you are completely responsible, in my opinion, for the tools that you're providing and for that speech. On the organic side, I'm not asking Mark Zuckerberg to be the one to fact check whether or not a post that Donald Trump says about mail-in ballots is fraudulent or not. You have a policy that you said you will not allow anybody on your platform to spread misinformation about voting and has been debunked by fact checker after fact checker. By, and we have to, as a society, decide who the credible sources are. We have to. Otherwise, there's nothing. Like, we have to decide, is the Associated Press a credible source or the state? We have to decide that. But once you decide that, you can't make exceptions just because you don't want to anger the power in the White House that could also take away your privileges and your immunities. So it's, it's yeah. this hypocrisy that I want to actually get at more. Um, we're, we're running just uh, slightly over time, but Daniel, I want to just, uh, before we do wrap up, uh, just your reaction to what Yael said there in terms of, you know, where, where do you think in, in this great argument about uh, Facebook's role in deciding who is authoritative, who is not, uh, what is true, what is not, what, what are your thoughts on that just very briefly? Yeah, so um, I think those are all legitimate questions and concerns to have in normal democratic times of normal partisan bickering. We're not there. Um, we have one party in this country and a president in this country that's looking to undermine free and fair elections. Every red flag should be going up, every red flag from every political scientist, from everyone who studies um, slides into authoritarianism and the weakening of the rule of law uh, is saying this is a major concern. In that world, Facebook and other companies have to call balls and strikes. They have to say what is anti-democratic uh, communication, what is communication that's looking to undermine the elections as opposed to promoting it, and they have to make those calls. Um, they play a role in providing guardrails uh, to safeguard democracy. That is their responsibility. That's their obligation. And Facebook and other companies are inconceivable in authoritarian countries. So they need to step up and play their democratic role here. Yeah, that's, I, that's, that's a good point. I mean, I think you're right. It, it is truly extraordinary times. And we've seen Facebook in the past in, in other countries and Myanmar and elsewhere, you know, treating... Uh, uh, extraordinary times as though they're ordinary and, and we see what happens there. So um, thank you both so much uh, for, for your time. Uh, we're going to hand it back, I think, to, to Danica. Um, you know, I, I, I didn't expect to end this on a high note. It's, it's not a, uh, <laughs> it is not, it's, it's a very serious topic right now. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of, lot, lot, lot of work to do. And, and I think, uh, I think you guys are right. Um, you know, uh, a lot of the steps they could have taken, it's probably too late for the election now, but we can only hope for the best. So, Danica. Wow, thank you guys so much. Thanks, Yael and, and Donnie and Daniel. Um, coming out hot, for sure. Like a lot, <laughs> that was a great session. Um, I can tell by the chat and the Q&A, 
hopefully some more questions will get answered as we go on today. If you stick around till um, the last session, Yael is going to ask uh, me and John as investors how we're looking at this space and I think we'll get into business models more there. Um, but really, really great talk. So thank you guys. Um, now I want to introduce Drew Galati. He's the co-founder or the founder, sorry, and CEO of Factmata, which is an artificial intelligence platform um, that is, you know, hoping to help us understand online content uh, and build a better internet. Um, and he is going to do a demo for us. Um, and so I thank you so much, Drew, for being with us. And I turn it over to you. Great. So um, what we've been building um, at FactMatter, let me just give a um, bit of an introduction to, to who we are. So uh, we've been trying to build uh, systems that are able to track essentially um, over time um, the first instances of uh, narratives that start to emerge online. So one of the biggest problems that we have in technology tools that are able to detect misinformation and disinformation is that you have existing tools that are able to, for example, alert you to um, keywords that, that might exist. Um, for example, you might set up some keywords around COVID-19 or QAnon, um, and then you'll, you'll be able to find some, some URLs, some links to, to what's going on. But the problem is, is that misinformation and disinformation is coordinated. And so um, narratives start to emerge from one place, uh, one platform, and then start to get shared um, to another. So I'm going to show you a little bit about what we've been building at Fact Matter um, uh, to try and combat that. Just a bit of introduction on to who we are. Uh, we've been working on this problem um, since 2017. Uh, we're backed by people like Biz Stone, the founder of Twitter, Mark Cuban, um, and uh, we've really been trying to look at this, at this problem from a multi-angle lens. Um, and I'm going to show you kind of a demo of what we've been building and working towards. So. If you go here, you can see basically how the product works. So essentially we can set up feeds uh, on specific topics. Um, let's say the US elections or COVID-19 or Black Lives Matter. We can even set up um, topics around brands. Uh, and that's important because of the business model that we have and we've figured out works really well in this space. Uh, we track cross-platform. So that can be Reddit articles, Facebook posts, Instagram posts. And we're taking in uh, more over time. So when a feed is created, we, we essentially ingest content from multiple different sources and essentially have technology that, that is able to uh, cluster opinions uh, about things. So uh, we have an extraction engine that, that over time can detect when one person expresses an opinion about something in text. So that could be some of those rumors that we were talking about, about Joe Biden not using a, a, an earpiece, mouthpiece. That could be something that we would detect and we would actually then cluster that into a narrative. Now, um, a narrative could be that specific mouthpiece. So in Black Lives Matter, you can see the types of things that we, we are detecting. Um, and this is all, all automated. So there's no, it's completely unsupervised machine learning. Now, apart from kind of getting these opinions and clustering them into narratives, we've built AI algorithms that analyze language uh, to be able to understand the writing style of how these narratives are evolving. Um, so we've built algorithms to detect propagandist language. We built algorithms to detect the stance that people have. Um, so that is essentially stance detection is not sentiment analysis. We're able to analyze something like how many people agree or disagree with the statement that um, Joe Biden was 
or worlds are not wearing a mouthpiece, if that was the narrative. Um, so another key thing that, that, that our system is able to do um, is start to obviously track over time, you know, what are the different narratives that are appearing, um, and then allow you to, to not only understand, okay, well, when the feed was set up, how many opinions were, were appearing about things, but what are the trends in the propaganda level, the misinformation level, the stance as well, and the threat score, which is a combination of all of those. So we've also been producing a feed on QAnon. So um, you can see when we go into specific narratives, you can start to see the types of um, language that starts to get used. And not only that, that's where the real magic comes in is be able to understand, okay, within that narrative, what are the sub phrases, opinions being, being spread within it? And who is, being who is spreading it as well? Uh, even when they first appear and the popularity is, is, is very, very small. Um, we have some stuff about COVID-19. Um, here are some, some ones that, that appeared sort of very recently. Um, and you can again see kind of what's, you know, what are the underlying narratives. So um, another thing that's really cool is that we've been building a system to be able to understand. So we even looked at the Singapore elections. And here, another thing that people really think is important in this space is understanding who is driving a narrative. Um, and here, you know, in the case of Lee Sien Yong in, in the uh, Singapore elections, uh, we actually try and map out the people involved in each narrative by their number of followers. And what gets more interesting is when you start to get people who are, you know, basically have no followers, which for us, uh, amongst a number of different signals, uh, tends to be a very interesting way of finding uh, bot accounts and people who are coordinating activity. Um, so I guess that's what I wanted to go through. Now, um, just a quick quick slide I wanted to kind of show about where we think this is headed and where, where, um, where I've understood that this space needs to really work on. So most monitoring tools are great at detecting these, what's going on online and describing uh, what's being said. Effectively, that's what we've built right now. Uh, and we've done it. Um, it allows uh, communications uh, people who are and governments who are actually trying to communicate against these things to understand what words and phrases and opinions are being spread. But really, I believe that the, the, the way that this space needs to move and what we're working towards potentially is helping people to potentially think about the right way to counter narrative and spread positive uh, opinions that are actually truthful uh, to combat the misinformation. So I wanted to show you a quick slide about how that's going to look. Um, um, go down to here. Uh, the idea that we've been thinking around and, and is around um, essentially mapping negative fake narratives to potential truthful narratives that you would you could potentially use to um, proactively spread or amplify. Um, because I think one of the things that that we've learned in this space is that a lot of activity um, is very adversarial and there are people who are coordinated trying to spread this misinformation and fact checking uh, that then produces a fact check on a website that, that gets no distribution uh, isn't really the right way of doing things. Um, and so we've been thinking very hard about how we can enable uh, agencies, um, people who are involved in, in, in combating disinformation to actually have tools to um, proactively uh, attack the other way. 
Awesome. Thanks so much, Drew. I, I don't think that we have time for questions now, um, but thank you so much for, for that presentation. That was great. Um, moving on now to the next session. Um, are we ready on that? Is Claire here? Yes, there she is. Um, excellent. So um, thanks. Um, the next session that we've got is called 2020 Disinformation State of Play. What's changed and how can we respond? And this talk is going to be led by Claire Wardle, who is a leading expert on social media, user-generated content, and verification. Claire, thanks for joining us today. Thanks um, for having me. Claire's research sits at the increasingly visible and critical intersection of technology, communication theory, mass, and social media. She's the co-founder and leader of First Draft, the world's foremost nonprofit focused on research and practice to address mis- and disinformation. And First Draft is housed at Shorenstein Center, which is a part of the JFK School of Government at Harvard, where Claire is also a research fellow. So Claire, thanks so much for having us here and I'll let you take it away. Um, we do have time for uh, a couple questions at the end of your talk though. So ladies and gentlemen, put a question in the Q&A if you've got one for Claire and we'll get to it at the end. Um, but without further ado, go for it, Claire. Thanks so much, Ben. And just to do a quick fact check, uh, we are not based at Harvard anymore. Uh, in 2018, they told us that the work we were doing was too political. Uh, so we left and we're now independent, which is actually much better. That's a longer conversation that we should have over gin. Uh, but I'm just going to quickly share my screen and nothing like putting a presentation together the night before and you're like, yep, really nothing new can happen here. And then of course, you wake up to the fact that the world has changed. So this all seems a bit crazy, this presentation, because everything has changed. So bear that in mind, I haven't been able to put a lot in. My team are currently monitoring all the narratives that you have seen on Twitter as well. Um, I think the most upsetting thing is how many people who I thought were smarter than this, um, basically saying he's lying, which actually the saddest part of that is that's where we are as a society. So anyway, I'm just going to give a kind of an overview of the stuff we're seeing around the election and to say, doesn't it seem quaint when we look back at 2016 and this is what we were most concerned about. And the reason I put this in here is because 2016, there was a, quite a lot of false content. This was the traditional fake news content. And as the platforms have um, made strides, although of course nowhere near as much as they should do, the more they've cracked down on things and of course so-called bad actors have changed their tactics. And so now a lot of what we see is genuine, but content used out of context. Uh, it's misleading, it's hyperpartisan, it's conspiratorial. It's content that actually doesn't hit the bar um, in some cases for the platforms. And this is the conversation that we need to have as society, which is what kind of speech do we want to have on these platforms? Um, so anyway, in terms of the things I want to talk about, it's understanding the, the tactics and techniques. And I know many of you know this, but I know many of you are technologists. And the one thing I stress every single time I give talks like this is that the biggest problem we have are visuals. They are the most powerful vehicles of disinformation. We know that we're not as expert in assessing computationally visuals and making sense of them. And often when the image is genuine, but the context has been weaponized, trying to understand the interplay between those things is actually pretty difficult. But most of the content we are looking at are memes. And although researchers like to dismiss memes, our brains actually, in order to make sense of a lot of memes, because they have a nod and a wink to popular culture, require our brains to kick in uh, much more strongly. It's like comedy. Comedy is a very effective vehicle of teaching because you have to get the joke. And so when people tell me like, oh, memes, Claire, whatever, uh, I have a lot to say about memes. Um, screenshots, again, astonishing to me how few people understand uh, how screenshots get made. And again, we see, we see a lot of this. This is a fake um, AOC tweet. Uh, this is actually a congressman from Florida's 13th district pushing this one out. Um, Mark Zuckerberg with his pivot to privacy. 
about 18 months ago now, he knew exactly what he was doing. He was looking at the data and he understood that there has been a chilling effect on speech and people have moved into groups. And all of us that were researching this space were shouting and screaming that actually privileging groups was a disaster when it came to disinformation. And lo and behold, a lot of the content that we see is most damaging is in Facebook groups, WhatsApp groups, uh, iMessage spaces. Uh, it's very difficult to, for us to track, if not impossible. Um, and this is the, these are the spaces that are really problematic. And so when we think about automated processes of tracking online conversations, how do we ensure that we are not missing this kind of content that you cannot pull from an API? And if you are going to go into these spaces, what are the ethical concerns about lurking in these spaces and doing this kind of research? Um, as I said, it's mostly genuine content used strategically and in a misleading way, not outright fabricated content. So here are images circulating that people think are actual ballots, but they're not. They're absentee applications. On the right hand side during the primary, different color envelopes was this whole idea that it was there was no transparency. I mean, you know, you could tell who people were voting for. Instead, it was a very stupid way of election officials figuring out how to process different types of ballots. But this stuff is a gold mine. There's nothing here that's anything other than genuine. But the context around it with people like, mm, don't you think? And that's when we think about how do we understand this is really, really hard. Because again, it's a nod and a wink. It's a suggestion that there's something wrong as opposed to being an outright uh, lie or falsehood. As we know, this is uh, both sides, although it is not symmetrical. Uh, there is more on the right than there is the left, but the left also uh, likes things that support their view. So here was something that looked like a USPS guy was pulling out a Trump sign. Again, this is genuine, but it was from 2016. It was from Delaware. It was not from Michigan, even though this was circulating in Michigan Conservative Network Facebook group. Uh, another favorite one, which you probably yourself may have seen this, was a piles and piles of drop boxes. Uh, that everybody thought was being pulled were being pulled off the street, but actually they were being sent to be painted. I mean, I'm not going to say anything about the timing, but um, there uh, we actually went. We found the centre that refurbishes uh, drop boxes, and they're like, "Yep, here's the." This was always in the calendar. We always meant to do that. So, so much of this content is visual, and so much of this content is genuine, but used out of context. Um, the other big shift in 2020 is that everybody has worked out the playbook. Uh, everybody knows how to use these kind of techniques and so we're seeing a lot more campaign operatives on both sides using techniques designed to mislead and manipulate so here we used ad analytics to discover that this ad on the right hand side that looks like it's for coronavirus community resources is actually a political ad likely connected to a data mining campaign um, so this this kind of stuff is really hard to track through the facebook ad library we could have a long conversation about how poor that is as a piece of technology um, but we have to understand that this is not just traditional foreign influence. In fact, the thing that I shout about all the time, and so does Dhoni, is a lot more of this content is domestic, either people in basements or it's actually political operatives or um, PR firms increasingly. Uh, you may have heard about the Pink Slime website. So because many local news sites still are trusted, um, very easy to create, actually very beautiful looking sites. The sad irony is lots of local news sites are full of ads that pop up and they're really badly designed. Uh, if you find a local news site that loads quickly, I almost always know that it's a, <laughs> it's a fabricated news site, but they look like they call things like uh, Denver Today or Down River Today or Capital News, Detroit City Wire. Uh, sounds like it's a professional site, certainly looks like a professional site when it gets shared on Facebook, uh, but these are being pushed and created by political operatives to look like traditional news sites. 
Uh, imposter content, which is as our brains are always looking for heuristics, mental shortcuts that help us make sense of what's credible or not. So if you see a logo of a new site that you've already trusted or a journalist name, you're more likely to believe it. So poor old uh, Byron Donalds here, he was actually the victim of an SMS campaign that went round where people used his name and also used a Fox 4 image to suggest that he'd actually dropped out of the race. He had to be like, nope, haven't dropped out. Um, so uh, just kind of a case study of how, how frequently we see imposter content. And so um, I have talked uh, for a while now about the trumpet of amplification, which is, uh, I wasn't the first to come up with this idea, which is a lot of this content starts in, on the anonymous web. Um, and those people have no audience. So the only way that they can have success is by pushing their rumors and conspiracies through the networked model. So from the anonymous web onto maybe a Twitter DM group or a Discord server, moving on to conspiracy communities, maybe in the open on Gab or YouTube uh, or Reddit. And then from there, the idea it jumps to social media. And so by the time it gets to Instagram, Facebook or Twitter, that's when you either have politicians wandering around finding it and giving it oxygen or you have journalists who are poking around on social media looking for stories and sources and they either don't realize that it's false and they report it as fact and they haven't verified it or they debunk it which if you are a bad actor that's the second best thing that could happen because you are giving oxygen to something that otherwise nobody would be talking about so this kind of model is what we talk all the, all the time with, with newsrooms around, which is just be so careful. You are being targeted. People are trying to manipulate you into covering uh, these rumors. And so, of course, many of you uh, know about QAnon and what's happened recently. Um, but the Save the Children hashtag, which is an example of keyword squatting, which is taking something that uh, you wouldn't expect to be problematic and basically connecting it with something that is. So this is QAnon essentially trying to recruit and recognizing that, to be fair, QAnon was starting to get a bit of a bad name. And so they basically took the Save the Children movement, the, the groups of nonprofits that support, you know, who are against child sex trafficking. Turns out this is a pretty successful strategy because there's nobody who's like, mm, I'm really for that. Uh, and they basically got onto, they created 200 different rallies on a Saturday about three weeks ago. And many, many people who turned up to those rallies didn't know that this was actually being pushed by QAnon believers. And so what, returning to that trumpet of amplification, you can see content here on things like 4chan, here's a Facebook post, w, or Instagram, WWG1WGA, where we go one, we go all, which is the QAnon kind of hashtag and logo and um, slogan. And so it goes from those conspiracy communities to local media. So, you know, looking at Google News on that Saturday, all of these local news sites covered these marches, having no idea uh, that this actually had any basis in QAnon and understanding how this content moves through uh, our information ecosystem. This is really hard for a local newsroom that has had their resources absolutely stripped away. Having to understand the ways by which they're being manipulated is really tricky. So at First Draft, we do a lot of work with newsrooms trying to give them a heads up about this kind of content that they don't understand how they're being manipulated. So going back to the professional media, unfortunately, the news media has always worked from this paradigm, which is more sunlight is a disinfectant that simply by reporting on something that actually exposes the problem and that is a good thing. The problem is that that has now been used against the news media and used as a vulnerability to take advantage of the news media who think that. And unfortunately, we see again and again and again pretty problematic coverage, which is newsrooms don't understand that they're being used in this way. So it was a pretty poor tweet that we saw from a local NBC affiliate, um, basically just repeating uh, Trump's claim. 
And uh, we're pushing out some research. We were going to push it out next week, but I'm not sure what's going to happen now. But we basically looked at all the times that the mainstream news media had taken Trump's tweets and put them on air. It will not surprise you to hear that there were very, very large numbers of tweets that we used on air. But as part of that data set, we pulled out all of the tweets that were specifically where Trump had talked about something being fraudulent or rigged. There were 40 of them. Only five were ever flagged by Twitter. When I saw this data set, I actually couldn't believe when you see them all in one, one place, how many times Trump basically made these claims and how many times these claims were then just repeated on air. Um, it's, it's something that we just really need to think um, much more about. So in terms of how can we respond, I heard Yale uh, earlier, earlier just say, this is I don't know what we can do between now and November 3rd. Um, and it, it does feel pretty depressing that we've been having these conversations for four years and we're where we are now, where I don't think newsrooms are ready, I don't think platforms are ready, and the public isn't ready. And I don't really know how we can excuse ourselves because we've had four years to prepare. Um, I think one thing is we've been running simulations with uh, newsrooms and platforms for the last year. We actually put a thread up about this yesterday, which I've pinned to the top of my Twitter account if you're interested. But running simulations around disinformation campaigns and getting people to think through how they would respond we've still got four weeks left. We should be doing this almost every day about different scenarios. I'm not sure anybody have had the scenario of what happens when Trump's diagnosed with COVID on October 1st. I'm sort of kicking myself now that we didn't do that one. Um, and also this is about building resilience amongst communities. So we launched a 14 day SMS course where every day there's a little nugget of content uh, designed for the mums and uncles of this world who don't know anything about uh, misinformation, disinformation, how to talk to your communities about this. It's in English and in Spanish. Um, those kind of things. We've just got to be innovative in the way that we are talking to one another about it. We cannot do traditional media literacy techniques. Um, and if anybody's interested, we're putting all of our content together in one place. Uh, we have a private Twitter account. We have a Slack community. Uh, we have a whole host of things where we're trying in real time to support journalists and the public to make sure that they're ready for this. I wish I had a better way to say, how do we respond? I just hope that by 2024, when we're doing another one of these, we're like, I think we did a little bit more this time around because we sure as hell haven't done enough for this time round. So that is me. I hope it's not too depressing, but um, those are my thoughts about where we are right now. Uh, Claire, wow. Um, I felt like I was just like listening to a breaker podcast that I'd put on 1.5 times speed. Um, I was <laughs> impressed how, how rapidly you ran through a lot of information. Um, thank you. Um, so we, got, we have a few questions that came through here. I have to say that the entirety of your talk, I just kept thinking about um, scenes from the classic Ali G show um, of him saying, Boutros, 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 golly, um, or his, he actually did one with Trump. And just thinking about how, you know, one of the things that we face right now is that there, there's a difference between disinformation being shared by random people, but when actual politicians share information, is it, I mean, once, once Donald Trump has said something, it's a, it's a statement. It's not, it's not, no longer just straight up disinformation, even if it isn't a real piece of information. Um, and uh, so a, a couple of questions that I want to just get to here that people asked. Um, so one question from John Fallett asked, um, Ari the Trumpet, is there a way to undercut the amplification process? A weak point such as some place way within the anonymous web or conspiratorial communities? Do, have you seen any evidence of people being able to do that or, or organizations being able to do that? Yeah, so I think this is like, how do we break up that trumpet? Yeah. And part of the challenge here is that a lot of people don't know what's happening in these anonymous spaces. It's harder to automate. I mean, 4chan is much easier, Discord is harder. Uh, trying to get into these spaces and to 
to be able to alert people to explain that process. I mean, so what I just explained to you, we do that in training with journalists and they're like, oh, I had no idea. So there is a challenge here is people don't understand. They, the stuff they find on Instagram, they assume started on Instagram. And so trying to make sure that people don't give it that additional oxygen is the tricky part. But lots of journalists will just be like, don't tell me what to report, lady. Uh, not Dhoni, but there is this idea that it's okay by us reporting on it, we're shining a light on it as opposed to we're being played, which unfortunately- Yeah, and that, that's in particular difficult because again, if Donald Trump says something, even if it's a falsehood, how to, you know, a reporter covering it because they want to say, hey, the president shared a falsehood, that's, that is news in and of itself, but you are also helping to propagate the continued prevalence of that falsehood. Um, it's, it's tricky. Another question that Judd Valesky asked um, is, should we as citizenry consumers be using tools like NewsGuard to validate anything we consume. And my add on to that is, is it even realistic to think that consumers could use tools to validate stuff? How, how, how could validation happen, help us at all? And it, it, do you see that as being a possibility? Yeah, I mean, I think for platforms and other people who want to be able to automate the process of, can we trust this? Can we put advertising against it, et cetera, et cetera. I think one thing I'd say, and I know everybody does know this, but I'd say those of us who are working in the quality information space, we fall into this trap all the time, which is people have a rational relationship to information. They do not all of us have an emotional relationship to information. So yep. if you find information that reinforces your bias, doesn't matter what the news guard tick says, doesn't matter, because it is telling you what you want to hear. And so that's the challenge we have with all of this. Okay, um, great. Well, I, honestly, there's, there's a few more questions and I'd love to keep you, but we've got a tight schedule. So thank you so much for being here, Claire. And where can people find, if they want to keep st t staying in touch with what you're doing, um, anything else that you're, anywhere else you're speaking coming up or any things that they sh we should follow online? There's a lot of places. If you follow me on Twitter or First Rock News, we put everything up there. Cool, excellent. Thanks so much. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to me. Danica uh, to introduce the next session. So you know, in our effort to share tools and startups who are, who are working in this space, the next startup I'd like to introduce is Volve Media. Co-founders Shannon Almeida um, and Priyanka Vazirani are using AI to try and rewrite news um, or write news headlines and articles uh, that remove the bias um, and just focus on the information. So uh, with that, we'll share what they're building. Hey guys, I'm Shannon. Hi, I'm Priyanka. And we are the co-founders of Volve. Very excited to be part of this discussion on disinformation today. Yeah, we're really glad Betaworks reached out to us to present our startup. I know we're short on time, so let's just jump right into it. Um, Volve is a news app that gives you unbiased stories in nine-second reads in a Tinder-like format. And to give you some sort of background on how and why we started, it came from experiences that we personally faced firsthand. Um, right before Volve, we were working on a social startup called Benefactory. It was back in December 2018 uh, when we were working on the migrant crisis campaign when we noticed the difference between left and right publications. If you open Washington Post and Fox News, you will see conflicting narratives of the same event. And it's kind of when we understood the implications from these narratives and they're increasingly becoming a problem and polarizing the country. Um, this problem is now further magnified by Twitter and Facebook, who are now facing a lot of heat for being unable to stop the spread of disinformation. I think a lot of people are also speaking up about it right now. Um, even people like Mark Cuban have been advocating for news that clearly separates fact from opinion. By the way, he's involved too. Uh, but anyway, apart from media bias, the other problem we're facing right now is just that we don't have time or the patience to read. 
Um, our attention span is down to just nine seconds. That explains TikTok, Instagram Reels, and every other platform out there offering sh short form content. Um, when you think of the news though, we do have newsletters, but then again, you have to wait until the next day to receive five news stories. We have memes on the news within the hour, so why do we need to wait? Um, that's pretty much how Volve was born. Um, Volve solves two pain points um, to give you short form unbiased content in real time. It's literally as easy as swiping on Tinder. So now let me take you through our product, the app. So you can easily swipe through articles on Volve right here. So this is a recent article about Trump paying $750 in tax in 2017. We give the option to readers to read the entire article. And when these articles do include bias, we also flag it to the user so they are aware. So essentially, this is what the reader sees. We spend a lot of time making it a seamless experience. But there's a lot that actually goes on in the back end, which we'll take you through in a bit. Okay, so I'm going to go through the foundations of what we consider media bias and what our AI is built on. We break down media bias into four levels, the first one being spin bias. This is when an article uses dramatic, sensationalized words. This is also how journalists put a spin to a story to change the narrative and prejudice readers through language. You can think of it as words like mocked, raged, threatened, etc. In this particular example, you can see Fox News uses the word reviled. The next sort of bias is bias by selection omission. It's more commonly known as slant. Um, it's when journalists leave out one side of the story and report only the other withholding key information. It basically narrows our scope of understanding. Right-leaning media entities usually publish articles that protect Trump, whereas left-leaning diss Trump. Um, the third one is bias by story selection. It's a pattern of news stories that coincide with the agenda of either the left or the right while ignoring stories that align with the opposing view. So um, this enables media outlets to publish their political agenda while distorting the news through disproportionate coverage. Um, the left ignores stories about Benghazi, whereas the right typically stays away from addressing climate change. Uh, finally, we have level four where opinions are presented as facts. This happens when journalists use objective language under the guise of reporting objectively. A sentence can easily be colored with their opinion or interpretation of the news, which would change the narrative of the story. If it's labeled as an op-ed piece, it's fine, but we've noticed that many a times it's not, and that's where the problem lies. This Vox article is a really good example of this. Um, the underlined sentence is clearly an opinion, but it's portrayed as factual news reporting. Currently, our AI is working on level one, two, and four, whereas the third one is tackled by writers. So this is our backend dashboard. Before our writers publish an article, our AI scans through it to determine if it's left, right-leaning, or nonpartisan. And we're also going to show you how our AI works, which we've never shown before. And let's dive in a bit. I'm going to add a headline here. And these bias legends will tell us whether it's left, right or center and it will accordingly change color. This is left because it's showing up in blue. So I'm going to change the sentence to a more factually based one. And now since the color is green, which means it's nonpartisan, uh, and that's our goal. So we can move on to the article bit. I'm going to add the content over here and you can see which lines are left leaning or right leaning. Most is green, 
um, which is center except for this one line which is blue so once I change that line it turns to all green and we're good to go and publish so all of this happens on the back end just to keep the front end minimalistic and simple at the end of the day we just wanted to make the news reading experience very enjoyable yeah, with the number of left and right publications and the amount of misinformation that's being shared within people's social media bubbles, um, it's an incredibly important time to have a news source that just reports the facts to nip this problem in the bud. Um, you can check it out. It's uh, Volve is available for free on Android and on Apple, and we'd love to hear your thoughts. So thanks for listening to us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you guys uh, so much. Um, up on our next session now, um, is going to be led by Lisa Kaplan, who's the founder of Alethea Group. Um, and the title for the session is Building Audience or Building Influence, The Complexities of Disinformation. Um, and Lisa founded the Alethea Group to help organizations navigate the new digital reality and protect themselves against disinformation. Um, so Lisa, we've got uh, time for you to speak and then we'll take two questions. So if you have a question, put them in the chat um, and uh, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me and thanks to Betaworks Studios for putting this on. Um, it's really incredible to be able to learn from everyone um, and learn more about what others are doing to, to really address this challenge in a meaningful way. My name is Lisa Kaplan and I'm the founder of Aletheia Group. We're a firm that detects and mitigates instances of disinformation and social media manipulation. And we take an impact-based approach to support our clients. Um, so for us, disinformation only matters if it's going to throw off your goal because we're trying to help our clients protect themselves and enable them to navigate this new digital reality. And so I wanna talk about my, one of my favorite entities that we have come across because our firm does everything from social listening and mapping to being able to um, actually attribute the actors who are behind disinformation and misinformation. And so last summer, August of 2019, and one of our analysts came across a Facebook post. And um, she is somebody who absolutely loves craft videos. And so it started showing up in her feed algorithmically. Talk, and I think that's important to note because going back to some of the, some of the things that the previous speakers have noted, the Facebook platform, the Twitter platform, they're showing us the content that they think that, they, that we want to see. And in this instance, um, there was poor grammar, there were all the telltale signs that something was off. So we clicked into it and we kept looking and we ultimately mapped out a series of 35 English pages and their companion um, foreign language pages to be able to identify a network that was a for-profit disinformation outfit. And it was primarily monetizing um, craft videos. But 99% of the time, the content was harmless. Um, it would do things like if you were to ever actually do these crafts, you would probably end up melting your table within the first three crafts that you tried because of the number of things that it wanted you to light on fire. But for the most part, there wasn't a lot of politically charged disinformation or false news. It does get into an interesting challenge though. When these, um, these networks, which are seeking to build an audience, what they're doing is they're also getting that data on you and they're getting that data on you early. And so when you think about the type of people who are watching craft videos that, you know, in this case, they were primarily targeted towards children. So if you're familiar with five minute crafts or five minute crafts kids, that's the entity that I'm talking about. And so in addition to their Facebook presence, they also have a YouTube presence and they're participating in the platform's um, partnership program, which means that the content that they are creating, they're, 
uh, they're actually generating revenue from because they've been able to get enough engagement and enough traction so that the um, platforms are giving them a portion of the ad revenue that um, they're earning from advertisers showing the, um, their advertisements on the sole publishing and five minute crafts content. So that got us to the next question. Who is behind this? What is happening here? And so through some of our attribution work, um, we were able to identify that it was associated with an entity that's called the Soul Publishing. A little bit about the Soul Publishing because I think its history is interesting. It started in 2004 in Kazan, Russia um, by two individuals who then later moved to Cyprus and opened up shop there. And then um, in 2018, they opened up legal entities in the US and the UK. They, um, what they do is they pay freelancers to be able to create content for them, write articles, that sort of thing. And then they post it online. And again, 99% of the time, it's totally just clickbaity. But then 1% of the time, it was really weirdly political. And what it would do is it would tell, um, you know, these alternative versions of history. So my favorite was a channel where they took most of these videos down after we ended up publishing an article about them. Um, they took a lot of these, um, they, they told this alternative version of history that essentially said um, things like, you know, the Russia lays claim to the Ukraine, the Ukraine, you know, saying the Ukraine and using all these different context clues and building influence with the people that it's been showing craft videos to, exposing them to false narratives, telling them things like Alaska was a gift from the Russians to the United States, and so on and so forth. Um, it also did post co positive content about specific political candidates. I'll let you guess which ones. And it paid to advertise some of that content in rubles. And so what the Soul Publishing is, and one of the reasons why we found it so interesting is because there's nothing nefarious about posting craft videos. They're just craft videos. There's nothing there there. Unless, of course, you're using those craft videos to um, drive traffic to a website and potentially continue to gather data on people or something of that nature. And so with the sole publishing, um, the question that becomes, it's a for-profit entity. There's nothing wrong with, you know, creating craft videos. There's nothing wrong with monetizing your efforts. And so what is it that can be done to better understand whether or not they're just building an audience or they're building influence? And, you know, of course, there are certain things about, um, you know, the for-profit content creator model that is great. It gives creatives a way to be able to get paid for their work. However, what, where's the line? Because if all you need to get a Google AdSense account and start monetizing is um, a bank account and a Gmail, is that sufficient enough? Is that enough protection to make sure that the platforms aren't getting abused? And so what we do at Aletheia Group is we identify entities like the sole publishing and to help people understand, you know, what's really happening? Where is information coming from? And because once you know where information is coming from, you can determine whether or not you want to trust it. We've already heard about some great solutions that um, enable individuals to more easily understand whether or not some, uh, you know, news is to be trusted or whether or not um, a piece of content is something that they want to actually pay attention to, things like NewsGuard, for example. However, 
you know, we're living in a world where to really understand, you have to essentially do your own investigations and maybe it shouldn't be that way. And so the work that we do is primarily focused on identifying who is behind um, a lot of these information flows and these digital infrastructures, you know, the series and networks of Facebook pages and YouTube channels and the domain architecture that is pushing all of this content so that um, organizations can determine whether or not they want to respond, how they want to potentially adjust their strategy. Do they want to try counter messaging to reach the populations that have been targeted in order to either expose the actor or um, stop the inoculation process, or do they want to five platform violations. But in order to have those options, you have to have the forensics. And so um, that is the the real like overview of the way these organizations work. It's not just on Facebook. It's not just on Twitter. It's not operating in isolation. A sophisticated network is utilizing every resource um, that they have at their disposal in order to be able to do things like reach users. So I'll pause there. I know we're getting close to time and would love to answer any questions. Thanks, Lisa. Uh, I've got a question for you. Um, what's one bold prediction that you might make about something that you think will happen in 2021? In 2021? Yeah. Um, well, I, I, I like, okay, so I'll start with the optimistic prediction. Um, the optimistic prediction is to the point that a lot of folks have already made that we start getting better at this that we start really putting in the measures that are needed in order to increase transparency so that individuals know where their information is coming from and they don't need to rely, to essentially be their own investigator in order to um, understand where information is coming from. My prediction is that we'll get better at labeling, that um, platforms will be forced to do a little bit due diligence on what companies and what entities and what shady PR firms out there are manipulating their platform for either political, reputational, or financial gain. So that's my optimistic um, prediction. My other prediction is that because we've had this overload of information and disinformation, and it's hard to know where information is coming from, that we are going to continue to see our society um, move into our little algorithmic silos and have bad actors start exploiting that it's hard to trust information anymore if you don't know where it's coming from, and that we are starting to have a serious challenge, which is not everybody trusts the news anymore. So if you don't trust the news, the question then becomes, who do you trust? And so being able to um, identify and expose a lot of these actors that are manipulating the information space and weaponizing information for their own gain is I think something we're gonna continue to see more and more of. Yeah, I mean, someone tweeted, um, who I think is attending this event right now, tweeted saying, watching a panel about misinformation uh, that has misinformation in it. Um, and, you know, I, I think the, the lack of trust is really like what you were just saying in, in your second point there. That's the big, a big concern for me is like, will we reach a point where no one trusts anything anymore? Um, uh, so we got time to ask, I'm going to ask two quick questions from the audience that came through. One is uh, from Matthew Wilson. What's the most surprising discovery you've made in your forensics work? So I think the most surprising discovery that we've made is just the number of um, domestic actors that are in this space and how complicated what we call the information supply chains have become. 
Um, and so when I say that we're, we're living in a world where, um, we're, what we'll see is groups of domestic actors that are, you know, hiring different components. It's not like you're hiring one firm to then be able to, um, do your monitoring and evaluation of your communications campaign, um, who are creating the content and pushing it out. What we're seeing is, um, people will hire these um, for-profit data collection firms to then support additional micro-targeting, to then be able to um, push out all of this content in order to, um, you know, um, confuse or um, essentially lie to people for their own gain. And we've also started seeing a lot of political actors and non-political actors engaging in the same tactics that were started by the Russians and not ended by the Russians, I would say. Um, according to our friends at the Global Disinformation Index, there are, are over 70 countries that are currently engaging in this, and that doesn't include the folks that we've uncovered. Um, so for example, um, we worked with the Washington Post to expose a for-profit disinformation firm that was operating out of Florida and using skip tracing to be able to build out better data profiles and be able to better target individuals. And when that happens, that's super dangerous because then they're just selling that to the highest bidder and they may not care who the highest bidder is. Yeah, I mean, I think you make a really important point that it's psychologically easy for us to just imagine that there are Russian agents that are pushing disinformation everywhere rather than imagine that it's those around us doing the same thing. And I, I, I like that you referenced PR firms as well, because honestly, the history of doing PR is always been about controlling information, manipulating information, disinformation, long before we had the internet or anything else like that. And I think what you're ta tapping on is that there's actually a new model for PR to an extent that is really about this. Um, cool, so last question um, actually from Yael. Um, she said, how do you do this deep analysis when platforms restrict access to data? Great question. So everything we do is open source. Um, so we, we do um, have access to the APIs, for example, the Firehose and all of that. But a lot of our analysis isn't just looking at the major social media platforms. And that's for a couple of reasons. And even then, you can still do analysis manually as needed. Um, it is important, though, to, to color within the lines there, um, just because you, know, you don't want to end up being on the wrong side of the um, wrong side of the line. So um, we look at pretty much any data we can get our hands on, and we're often more interested in what's happening off of Facebook, Twitter, and even Reddit to a degree, because um, you know bad actors are seeding their narratives elsewhere, and they're relying on just regular people to see it and move it on to another platform. And so we spend most of our time, I would say, in like the fringy depths of the internet. Um, and collecting data and analyzing that um, to be able to understand information flows and be able to try to catch things before they make it onto Facebook and Twitter. Now, there's two different types of information or disinformation, I should say. There's, you know, the, I always talk about the video of Speaker Pelosi from CAP that got slowed down to 75% or whatever it was where she looked drunk and it went viral. That's, you know, the, the one-off. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a coordinated and well thought out effort to manipulate the entire media sphere in order to be able to continue to push falsehoods. So we look for that digital infrastructure I was describing and how it's all connected. Because once somebody has um, an audience, they can build influence and determine what it is that they see. 
Cool. Well, uh, Lisa, we could ask you questions all day. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Um, and where can we follow you for more updates on the internet? You can find me on Twitter and LinkedIn is where I'm most active. And I do check my DMs. So if you have any questions, shoot me a message. That's a good clarifier. Yesterday we did an event uh, with a VC and he was like, anyone who messaged me on LinkedIn will never get a reply, FYI. Yeah. Um, so, cool. but Twitter, I check. So Excellent. I'll see you there. <laughs> Thank you, Lisa. Um, cool. Awesome. I'm going to turn it over now to my colleague, Danica, who will introduce our next demo. I'm back. Um, really excited to introduce our next demo. We have Sophie Payne joining us. She's the co-founder of Join. Um, she's an academic, a scientist, a designer. She's, you know, trying to create, her and her team are trying to create a new social network that helps to avoid the pitfalls, the problems, the misinformation landscape that we've, you know, spent the last hour and a half talking about. So with that, welcome Sophie. Hi Danica, hi everyone. Thanks for inviting me on. Um, so I'll get going. So I'm Sophie, I'm co-founder and chief product officer at Join. Uh, Join is a new social media platform, much like Facebook, Insta and Twitter. Um, but the main difference is we've designed Join specifically to tackle the issues of disinformation, polarization and radicalization that we are seeing being driven by social media today. So I'm just going to start sharing my screen. So a side note on disinformation before I get into the demo. Um, so we know that disinformation is exacerbated by bots and fake accounts, which are used to drive engagement with disinformation and ensure that it spreads faster and further than the truth. And often this means that all you end up seeing on your feed is one piece of outrageous disinformation and everything else is drowned out. So we are digitally ID verifying everyone on our platform so that we're getting rid of those armies of bots. And we think that even without the features I'm about to show you, we think that just by removing the bots and fake accounts, that will drastically reduce the reach of disinformation on our platform. But on with the features. So I'm going to show you two features today that we've designed to address these issues. Um, and the first is our custom algorithms feature. So I'm just going to go into the join feed. So our custom algorithms feature, it puts users in control of what content shows up in their feed. So I'm going to open this here. So this is my feed controls. So at the top, you can see I've got options for sorting and filtering content, and these are pretty self-explanatory. But underneath that, we've got your custom algorithms, and this is the exciting part. So you can see I've already got some custom algorithms set up already. So news, close friends, sports, and weekend. And for example, let's say it's Monday morning, I'm drinking my coffee, and I just want to check the news. I don't want to get distracted by anything else on social. I can just click on news. And then if I go back to my feed, you can see that the composition of my feed has already changed. I'm now seeing posts, uh, more posts from like news accounts that I follow. So I'm just gonna show you how this is working underneath the hood. So this is our custom algorithms page. So you can see here, these are my custom algorithms. I can create new ones. I can edit the ones I already have. If I scroll down and just take a little look at this uh, news algorithm, you can see the way it's working. So it's taking 60% of the posts on my feed from news and politics accounts that I follow, 5% from products and companies, 5% from influencer, etc. And I can edit this at any point by just using these sliders. I can create unlimited custom algorithms so I can just use social media how I want to do it. We also 
you have a second type of algorithm, which is basically just a list. So the close friends one here, if I go down, you can see this is just a list of accounts and I can just add and remove accounts here. So if I go back into my feed controls, tap close friends and go back to my feed, you can now see that I am just seeing posts from my close friends on join. So this, this feature, this custom algorithms feature, it allows me to make conscious decisions about the type of content I want to consume, when I want to consume it, and for how long. And this is the opposite of how platforms like Facebook operate with the attention economy. They just want me to keep scrolling forever. They want to scramble whatever is in my feed. So I just keep going and I never leave the app. So now the second feature I want to show you is very exciting and it's very new for us. We've been developing it recently. Um, and this feature we are calling Threads and it is, we, we've built it to try and help uh, people to contextualize the information that they're reading online and prevent disinformation from prevailing on our network. So Threads are a way for users to more easily discover and understand trending topics on Join. Um, they are collections of posts that have been curated by humans, not algorithms. And threads, we think, do two things. So firstly, they give a broader, deeper contextualization of issues for users when they're first discovering them. Um, and this allows people to delve more deeply into topics that they want to read about. Um, and it also gives the authors of a thread the ability to provide multiple sources of information on a topic or a news story. And this second part is crucial, as we think, just like a good university essay, threads that provide high quality sources um, will be favoured by our algorithms. Um, and our hope is that threads, because of their diversified nature, will help stop disinformation from dominating any one particular news cycle. So um, I'm going to show you an example of a thread. So we're going to take a look at this presidential debate fact check thread. So as a Brit, this type of thread is actually really helpful for me. I did think about staying up to, to watch the debate, but it was just too late for me. And by the time I got on Twitter in the morning and tried to see actually what had gone on, the majority of posts that I was seeing about the debate in my feed were just about how Trump kept um, interrupting and talking over Biden. I basically saw nothing about, for example, COVID or healthcare or voting or any of those issues really. Um, so this list would be really helpful for me to come and actually find out what was said and hopefully get some fact checks on that info. So if I scroll through this list, um, we can see here that it's uh, uh, split up into sections. So the authors of this thread have added these sections and they've pinned these different um, posts from join from different authors on join in here so I can come here and I can immediately get a more rounded view of what actually went on during the debate as opposed to what I was seeing in my Twitter feed the morning after which was just the one or two sound bites that get the most attention on Twitter so uh, and here you see pre-bunking and just as an aside on what fact matter presented. We love your solution and it's exactly what we are trying to build internally to monitor and stop the spread of conspiracy theories on our network. We especially love the counter argument feature. We want something similar and we are thinking of calling it debatabase so that we can proactively respond and debunk, debunk conspir conspiracy theories on join. Um, 
So a really important purpose of this threads feature is to stop that outrage machine. And what do I mean by outrage machine? Well, the outrage machine is either small sound bites like Biden saying, shut up man, or side issues like Trump talking over people. It's things that are there to distract, distort, deflect from, or deny proven truths as a method of sparking social media engagement and distracting from the real issues. And the nature of the feed on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and the algorithms used by those platforms really fuel this machine and allow disinformation, conspiracy theories, and noise to consume people's attention. So we are hoping that with our custom algorithms, which allow people to take control of the content within their feed, and our threads, which allow people to contextualize the information that they're reading and get information from multiple sources. We hope that the users of Join will be able to make conscious decisions about the information they consume and take back control of their time online. Um, so we believe that better social media experience is possible and we believe that we can deliver it. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Sophie. Thanks for sharing that with us and um, appreciate all the thought and work your team's putting into trying to help clean up our information environment. So appreciate the demo. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Um, so we have come to that time in the program where uh, I'm going to invite Yael back on stage. And uh, she is going to uh, interview me and John Borthwick as uh, the investors here at Betaworks who've been looking at this space a lot and trying to think about, um, if we go back to the, the beginning of the day today, there were a lot of questions on how does business model, you know, impact the way companies behave like Facebook. Um, and I think there are a lot of other questions in how we look at this space. So with that, um, welcome, John. Thanks for being here with us and welcome back, Yael, and I'll turn it over to you. Great. Thanks. Um, what a great way to sort of wrap up all of these great presentations and conversations with. So we've talked about what some of the problems are. We obviously there's lots of pieces to this puzzle of how did we get here and, and what can we do next. Um, but one of the things I personally have found is often missing in this conversation is how can we invest in the next generation of technologists who might want to approach technology differently and might want to help sort of fix some of this. So I'm really glad to wrap up with this. Um, I, I think everybody knows you, but I, I shouldn't assume that. So John, who I'm not sure if he's up yet, hopefully he is. Um, John You are, great. So John's yes, and CEO. Um, he, you know, for those of you who aren't as familiar with Betaworks, I'm sure he can tell you a bit about his journey, um, but he has been in this industry for a while. And, you know, Betaworks has invested in companies like Venmo, Twitter, Jiffy, Bitly. I'm pulling this off of your website, so correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and Danica is, she leads the Betaworks camp. 
and which is also now the beta lab effort. Um, she was a VP in marketing at Jawbone before and spent a decade at Apple and prior to that HP. So we really have two like people who have really been in this industry for long enough to have seen sort of some of this evolution. Um, so John, I think I'll start with you. I would love to hear a little bit about your journey in this space. And, and if I can just start right with a tough question of, is there anything that you've learned from your time investing in tech and working in tech, some of the mistakes that you've learned from as you're thinking about how you're now investing and will do so in the future? Yeah, I think, um, I, I think uh, quite a few. And so I'm going to, first of all, I'm going to follow uh, Claire Waldell's inspiration and sort of try and go at one and a half speed. Um, and so, because I'm normally slow in the way I talk and the way I think, um, I, I think that we have, uh, you know, since starting Betaworks uh, up like 12 years ago, or since I, you know, first made my first angel investment, I think that um, we've we've come a long way and we've learned an awful lot. I mean, I think that, you know, it, when we started, I think that all of us, uh, when I speak for myself, uh, you know, came to technology somewhat naively. And uh, we saw a lot of this technology almost like toys, right? And so we saw them having all of this promise and all the capabilities. But I think that um, in many cases, uh, whereas we were ready to oversell their impact um, as potential, um, you know, this is going to be huge, right? We, we actually didn't think through the full impact on society and think through the full impact that this particular thing could have. Uh, so, you know, um, you know when uh, pitching a company and saying, hey, this is gonna change the way the world communicates. I mean, that's in, an intriguing proposition. But, but now that we actually have companies that have radically changed the way the whole world communicates, have connected the whole world, um, connecting the whole world sounds like a good thing. Um, uh, giving everybody a platform to speak sounds like a good thing, but the implications of that, I think, uh, were not well thought through. Uh, I think most people came to, I think pretty much everyone I know came to this you know, with uh, naive optimism, but thinking through and building into the process of building companies, the, that sort of second order set of questions, okay, what if we actually do manage to connect the world on a single platform. What does that mean? What happens if we can give everybody the ability to speak? Uh, what does that mean? Uh, and so I think understanding those things and thinking through those things and building companies um, and investing in companies that actually have um, uh, give themselves or structure themselves from the outset to be able to be responsive to th uh, those uh, sort of unintended uh, or second order effects, I think is, uh, is a lot of what we've learned about. Sorry, I muted myself because there was construction going on outside. Let me ask you one more question before moving to Danica and then I'll come back to you. But do you think, I mean, venture capital in particular, do you think it's incentivized to do what some might call the right things? Because I know, you know, in the past, I've spoken to enough startups who when they speak to venture firms, the, the thing is they want them to move fast. They want them to show how they're going to scale, how they're going to build. Move fast, break things, grow, yeah. grow, grow, grow. Venture capital incentivized to, to do the right thing and to change the way they think about investing? 
So, so I think uh, the short answer is no, right? And uh, however, I think that in the last 10 years, we've seen the emergence of uh, parallel to that traditional venture capital, we've seen impact funds uh, and the ESG funds who have specifically a mission focus to them that have emerged and have become big and big players on, on the stage. And they most definitely do. And then coupled with that, I think we've seen a set of venture uh, investors, and I would put us into this category, who actually do think about this stuff, care deeply about this stuff, and are trying to figure out how we can create within our process a set of um, uh, a set of parameters that will give us both better outcomes and outcomes that we think are, will be better products for society, and so. Uh, you know, we we have a whole set of um, uh, systems that we're trying to build around that and think through that. A lot of it does come down to culture, in in my view, right? Because I think that the venture the venture business and uh, the and the software business, uh, a lot of it has been about uh, has been geared towards speed. And I think that it's having a culture where you begin to ask some of these questions and you begin to think about some of the longer term impacts as well as the very short term impacts. And I mean, to take a concrete example is, is that if you look at, um, if you look at what's happening today with uh, machine learning and sort of you know, uh, areas of, um, of AI, and so, you know, specifically, I'm, I'm thinking about like natural language processing, GPT-3, and what's happening in those spaces there. You could see how just having uh, the importance of us actually thinking through, okay, if, if we, we, we spent a couple of hours on talking about the news media, but if we have algorithms that can compose text-based media that is then distinguishable from human-written media, what does that mean for uh, for truth? Uh, what does that mean for uh, the ability for people to distinguish what is human versus what is machine created? And and thinking through some of those longer term um, implications. And uh, so so I think that there's there's a ton of questions here. I'm gonna let you. I'm gonna pass the mic back to you. Sure. So I I want to bring Danica in here. Um, you know, part of what I think a lot about is, it seems to me anyway, that a lot of um, sort of the more public goods works, the things that are trying to solve a problem for society rather than making something convenient. Unfortunately, often that seems to get left to philanthropy. Um, does it just have to be that way? Like can venture, I would love to hear your thoughts on how, whether it's the venture community or the broader investment community, is their role shifting? How are they starting and how are you guys starting to think about some of the more public good versus traditional um, just scale growth and unicorn model? So Danica, I'd love to hear some thoughts on that from you. Yeah, it, there's a couple of ways, right? One culture is shifting, I think, right? We're having this talk today and everybody who's shown up um, is here because it's, it hurts, right? Like this, this, um, this media environment that we live in is is um, is painful and difficult to exist within. But the larger environment as as well. And so I think culture is shifting. And and I mean, in large part, sort of what consumers and sort of particularly young consumers who are you know sort of coming up and finding their 
power right now, they care a lot about what companies stand for. They care a lot about the people who run those companies. Um, they do research and they expect companies to behave better. And frankly, they don't care at all that, you know, a C Corp means a certain thing or a B Corp means a certain thing in terms of what that company's financial responsibility is, but they care a whole lot about how, um, how that company faces and behaves and, and, you know, takes up space in the world. So I think that that means we need to respond to that, right? Great companies um, are often so great because they know who they serve really, really well. And if you're a consumer company, you serve that end user, um, hopefully, and don't get confused along the way between who's the product and what, and what is actually the product um, you're delivering, um, like some of our big platforms are right now. Um, so I think that there is space because the people who will pay for our products and services care, and they're going to expect those companies to have um, a moral compass of some sort. Um, and you can see that changing even for big companies today, right? It wasn't very long ago that big corporations by and large would stay out of social issues. Um, they would consider that to be politics. Um, and now we have an environment in which, you know, companies who don't take a stand on things like diversity or equal pay, or even things like immigration um, that are going on in this, in this country seem to very quickly be on the wrong side, right? And, yeah. and notice. Um, and so I think venture capital is just part of this larger ecosystem. And I don't think that we are immune to, um, to caring or to recognizing that the people who are going to use these products and ultimately pay for them care too. And, and so let me follow up here. I'm going to, I have a few more questions, but I'm going to take one from uh, the Q and A as well. Listen, I'll, I'll be really frank. I, I wouldn't have been as excited. I wouldn't have joined Beta Lab and worked with you guys if, if I thought that this was this traditional venture model that is grow, scale, and society be damned. Like, I'm very excited by the idea of investing differently and what we can do here. But I'm going to take this question from an anonymous attendee. It starts with the words, tough question. It says, can we really trust an industry like venture capital that is Oh, where did it go? That is designated to care about making money to focus on the greater good. Is there a conflict there? Um, either of you, I mean, I know you sort of just did answer that, but one of the things I wanted to get to really is also it's about trust and, and everything we're talking about today is about trust and rebuilding trust. So maybe also folding into that question, is there trust to be rebuilt? How do we do this? Uh, maybe Danica, if you want to start with that, so take it over to John as well. Go for it, Danica. Okay. I mean, I do think that there's, you know, there is a, a gap trust, right? And, and it's not enough to sit here and talk about how we'll do things differently. We very much have to put sort of our money where our mouth is. Um, and, and there's a few things I can't speak for the whole entire industry, but I can talk about this is why Beta Lab exists, right? This is something that was incredibly important to us, not to just um, say and wring our hands and hope that, you know, government will come in and regulate Facebook, right? But can we support this rising um, uh, generation of entrepreneurs who are optimistic and maybe a little, little egocentric and think like, yeah, I can do things differently. I can build something better. So, so investing in them is part of it. Um, but we also built this program so that we could sit alongside these companies 
and bring people, frankly, like you, Yael, and, and like some of the other folks that we've heard from today who are not necessarily machine learning experts, but who are social scientists, who are political scientists, who are maybe, you know, behavioral economists, but who, who, are, who have other expertise and can we bring that diversity um, into the circles of these founders? So to John's point, it is a lot about the kind of culture you build at your company. Um, I, I do not believe, and I don't think any of us believe, like that Mark set out to create a company that would break our democracy. Like I'm pretty sure that wasn't in his mind in his dorm room. Um, but the culture of venture capital and the culture of get big, get fat, you know, get big quickly and break things means you may not be thinking about your internal decision-making culture. You may not be thinking about how do you set that North Star such that everybody understands um, what the, you know, when you hit that crossroad, when you are faced with a tough decision, what are your guiding principles and how do you make decisions against those um, such that, or take the time to make the decisions and ask the permission to take that time such that you can bring in um, and be sur and surround yourself with diversity of thought um, so that you can build a company that is durable, but also is um, eyes wide open as the world changes around us. What's interesting yeah. about this investor incubator camp model, but John, I also, if I can just for sake of time, I have a question for you. Do you, I, I'm curious what advice you have for companies, for young startups who really do have a, an idea of how to either, as you guys call it, fix the internet or how to tackle some of these problems. What tips do you have if they're nervous about how to pitch their idea while also thinking about, but how can I convince this investor that I'm gonna be a unicorn or make them a lot of money? Like what advice do you have for companies to sort of balance that pitch? Yeah, so I, I mean, I would say to try to thread together this, that question and also the, hard, the tough question from before is that I think that as Danica was suggesting, you, you and even us as, a, uh, as an investor, you, you as a startup uh, person, you have a set of constituents or stakeholders around you, right? We always think about the end user and we're obsessively focused on the end user, but you also have investors, you also have team members. And these are all your customers, investors, team members, all of these stakeholders around you. And, and I think it is, um, uh, you know, the way that I uh, talk to founders about this and uh, think about it is that I would say, first and foremost, is that don't think about this as something I will fix once I get successful. In other words, like I'm just gonna get product market fit and then I'll figure that out. Okay, what happens if your product is a brain machine interface? Right. What happens if your product is actually implanting something in people's brains like those startups doing today? And then you're going to you're going to just get that working and then you'll figure out the ethics of it. I think you've got to think about this stuff before. And so and you and it, you have to think about it before, because the if you're successful, the time that you can get to scale is frighteningly short right now. So you need to think about day one. But secondly, and almost more importantly, you need to be, bring this into your culture from day one. Right. And so um, there are companies that we have both incubated and invested in at BetaWorks who've thought about DEI, diversity, equity and inclusion as something I will deal with later. And they'll invariably struggle to deal with it later. It is something that you need to, this is something you need to think about at the outset. Um, 
And, and it is a balance because you, as you're suggesting, Yael, investors are gonna want you to not be overly focused on your values, but also to really explain how you're gonna build an amazing product, be it a, a brain machine interface, whatever it is, you're gonna build this amazing product that is gonna change the world and make people money. So I think it is a balance. And I think as Danica was alluding to, your customers, users, employees, all these stakeholders and investors are now starting to think about companies that can actually balance all these things. Because when you think about AI, when you think about gene editing, when you think about brain machine interfaces, when you think about automation, um, you want to work, I think, with companies, be an employee, invest in companies, be an investor in investors who invest in companies who are thinking about these as multi-dimensional problems. If you just think about it on the dimension of ROI, I think that you're going to end up either as an investor or as an entrepreneur having a very, very narrow set of functions that you're solving against for success. And invariably in today's world where technology is actually having impact that is much wider than that, invariably you're going to end up having issues that will either break your company or will uh, will end up uh, becoming a much bigger problem than you expected if you don't build it in early. So I know that we're getting close to the end, but I know we started a few minutes late. So I hope people will stay on just for three or four extra minutes. I really want to get to some questions from the chat. Um, one of the questions from the chat here is, is it better for VCs to be trying to support real news information by investing in new media projects? or in using their influence to fix the media that already exists? I think it's a really interesting question. I, I'm throwing it over to either of you if you have thoughts on this one. Um, I'll start. I think it's not an either or, right? I mean, I'll, I'll speak, you know, again, for, for our experience, we work closely with a lot of existing media companies to um, share technology that we're seeing, to introduce them to ideas, you know, a couple of years ago it was podcasting, but today it might be things like we've seen today, right? And so can we help existing media companies? I, I mean, I think at least, again, within our walls, we have great respect for real journalism and the work that journalists do. Um, and so can, can we help those companies continue to find ways to reach audience, to continue to do their work they're doing, to continue to make money or try to make money at it, if you are, right? Um, but I think there's also great opportunity for, um, you know, the earlier promise of some of the social platforms giving voice to those who have traditionally been left out of, um, of media, uh, media capital M. And so, you know, I think both things are important um, and, and using technology to help us maintain um, truth or, or raise truth up and give voice to truth, whether that comes from an individual in, you know, a part of the world that we don't have a journalist from the New York Times sitting in, or it comes from, you know, the newsroom at the Times or whatever um, your favorite publication is. I think those are both important places for us to be, you know, focused and investing. I'm going to go to one more question in the q and I'm sorry, there's two great questions I'd love to ask. I think 
No offense, anonymous attendee. I'm going to pass over the sort of responsibility regulation piece because that's a whole nother conversation in and of itself. But this is going to go a little dark. Here we're going to end it on a dark note. Um, I want to ask both of you this question. So an anonymous attendee asks, you guys seem to have thought hard about synthetic media. Um, in fact, I'm adding in tier, I know that one of your previous camps was about synthetic media. So here it says in the, in the Q&A, yeah, I'll mention ballots being thrown in the river. Claire talked about preparing for scenarios. What upcoming malicious deep fakes do you worry about most? And what are you doing about it? So why don't we start with John and then I will wrap it up with giving Donica the, the last word on it. Yeah, so in, in terms of deep fakes, I mean, we've done, We've we've done a, uh, quite a bit of work around video-based deepfakes um, and audio-based deepfakes. The the area that I'm actually most concerned with the IL right now is text, um, and uh, it, it's for many reasons. Uh, one of them is is that um, uh, textual uh, you can you can mix and match a you could take a sentence that was algorithmically created and cut copy and paste it into something that was human written and you can do that very fluidly right it is it is more challenging it is in terms of time money and expense to do that with audio and video um couple with that is that text is just still it's the dominant medium or media form that we use to understand information uh, Couple with that is, is that the algorithms that are now beginning to compose text are also beginning to understand text, right? And so the amazing sort of from a uh, sort of you know, both uh, promise and also darkness, you know, sort of like the, the point that we're moving towards is that, you know, there was this uh, stage in the development of algorithms that were reading images, which is people refer to as the image net moment, where we hit a point where a, uh, an algorithm could actually understand and identify woman, cat, dog, um, as well as our president could um, in an image. Um, and that, that, that was a seminal moment in, uh, in computer vision. And we're reaching that also now in text. And so that uh, I think in the next two, three years, we'll be able to read text and understand text in the way and machines will be able to create that. And it will be completely indistinguishable, the line between human created. You won't be able to read a, you know, last year we put up a blog post on Medium that was created by GPT-2. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and when we outed it and said, hey, this was uh, authored by an algorithm, there were a bunch of people who said, this actually read like a lot of Medium posts to me. I sort of thought I wasn't quite getting it, but it was sort of like that normal techie speak. And so that's because it was trained on that, right? So text. So what was the, was the second part to your question? For the second part. The second okay. part is, and what are you doing about it? Oh, there you go. Danica, good luck. <laughs> We're doing that. So I was going to be more comfortable with the what am I worried about and what do we do about it. Also to add what you're worried about. <laughs> no, I mean, I'll, I'll be really short. In, in the things I worry about in the very short term, at least, you know, today and the next month as we think about the elections, it's the stuff that that Claire talked about. It's the stuff we've talked about for a while. It's not actually deep fakes, right? It's, it's truth being taken out of context. Um, and, and truth being turned into lie or mis, you know, mistruth. Um, so I worry about that because it's rampant and it's happening. 
Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that we can do about that is just keep doing this, right? Get as many voices and as many people more media literate um, and, you know, and try to spread sort of tools that, that regular news consumers can use. Um, on the deep fake side, it, you know, as we started to dive deeper into looking into synthetic media and looking for companies that were using um, GANs or other algorithmic techniques to um, synthesize video, images, audio, text, um, it immediately became apparent to us that the potential for misuse was great, even if we haven't in the wild seen that, you know, yet, um, at, at least, um, you know, yeah, not, not in a broad way. Um, so we should invest in the things that will help protect us against that, right? Like that one of the tools we have is what we invest in and what we support. And so, you know, we've invested in companies that are doing deep fake, in a company that's doing deep fake detection. We invested in a company that is synthesizing voice, but through the process of working with them through our camp, like we just talked about, um, they also realized, we better if we're if we're going to advance the technology to you know to fake audio we should advance the technology to detect that and so they also offer um now a detection tool um and i think that's you know that was kind of the precursor to beta lab and and figuring out you know that is one of the tools we have we choose what we um you know what we get behind and put our support behind so that is that's what we're doing today so I think that's actually a really good way to wrap it up. Before I turn it over to whoever's going to make the final words, I just want to say thank you. I, I think that, um, again, it's, it's rare. We, there's so many disinformation and misinformation events out there, but to actually also hear from the people who are investing in tech, how they're thinking about it, I think is an, a lovely extra step at the end. So thank you, John and Danica, for agreeing to have this conversation with me. And I thank will over to whoever is wrapping the event. Thank you, Yael. Welcome back, Ben. I'll, I'll say my thanks and then I'll let you wrap us up completely, Ben. But I also just, I wanna echo that. Thank you, Yael. Um, I know you worked really hard to pull some wonderful experts together that are outside our normal sort of tech event um, sphere of influence. And I really appreciate that because I think it's super important that we all hear from lots of different people and lots of different points of view. And that's how we maintain civil discourse. And that's how we get smarter about these categories that we care about. So thank you for, for your help. And thanks to all the speakers today and for everybody who cared enough to spend a couple hours with us and um, participate in the event. Yeah, thank you, Yael, and thank you, Danica, and everyone else. Um, if you tuned in late or um, had to jump out early, I guess you wouldn't be here to hear me say this, but we will be sharing uh, with everyone who signed up a link uh, for the event if you want to watch it all later. Um, thank you so much for being here. Um, and I'll mention, as always, Betaworks Studios is here every day. We do event daily events um, through our virtual membership program, so check it out. Um, anyone who bought a ticket gets a free month. Uh, we'll be sending you guys, uh, I think we're going to put a, a, there's a link right here in the chat, and then we'll send you an email um, and hope to see you guys next time. Um, our next render is going to be focused on natural language processing. So thanks all and uh, have an awesome weekend.